We've had a lot of scripture this morning, and there's a reason for that. Uh, It's out of the same book of Hebrews that George just read from that says the word of God is living and active, and that it cuts into us. It tells us, and it tells God, and it proclaims for all to see who we are, even to where we've gone wrong, and it tells us where we need to go. So we're not afraid to spend a lot of time in Scripture here, at least I hope we aren't. But let me, let me try and make sense of what we were just hearing out of the books of Joel and, and Hebrews. Now, that book of Hebrews is, is sort of a transition for us, where we were talking about this new covenant. Because we've been talking in the book of Joel about how everything that's happening here is, is all stuff that was happening because the people of Israel were under a covenant relationship with God. Now, now what's a covenant, first of all? Well, a covenant is, is sort of like a treaty. It's an agreement that different parties enter into. I will do A if you do B, and you will do C if I do D, and and so on and so forth. There are all sorts of of, uh, things that you can get out of a covenant, but it's basically God saying, this is what our relationship will look like. If I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people, here's what I will do, and here's what you will do, and here's what happens if we break the covenant. And here's what happens if we keep the covenant. That's the background to the book of Joel, this covenant that God made with the people of Israel. And that covenant, really the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, either contain that covenant or or are a commentary on that covenant. We're going to encounter that in a couple of different places today. Now, to refresh your memory, here's what's been happening so far. Joel is a prophet, and Joel goes to the people of Israel, and he says, I want to tell you about some things that are going to be happening here, maybe things that have just happened. There are going to be locusts. Now, it's a little bit hard for us to take into, you know, to understand what the significance of locust would be, because most of us, we know, we, we know intellectually that our food comes from farmers, who, who grow it in fields. We've been surrounded by those fields here, aren't we? You've got oranges on, on three sides of the church. But most of us don't actually put a lot of effort into growing that food, do we? Maybe you've got a garden at home. I don't. I hate gardening. I hate things like it. So God bless you if you love it and if you grow my food. But uh, it's hard to grow food, isn't it? There are all kinds of disasters that can happen to keep your food from coming out right. Uh, You can put it in the wrong soil. Maybe the soil's bad. You can not get any rain. Actually, that's one of the things that happens to the people here. And they didn't have irrigation ditches, and they didn't have dams, and they didn't have reservoirs. If it didn't rain, the food didn't grow. You could have pests, the Asian citrus psyllid that's destroying so much of the orange crop across the country and even around the world. Well, locusts were one of the most feared sorts of pests that were out there because when the locusts swarmed, they would come and they would eat everything and nothing would be left, nothing at all. And it wasn't just about this year. Gosh, you know, we had a bad harvest this year. If you have a bad harvest next year, it was more likely to have a bad harvest next year. Because how did you plant next year's crop with this year's harvest? 
The locust coming wasn't just a disaster for a year. It was a disaster that would last years and years. There was drought and the crops failed. There were armies coming into the land of Israel and the people were suffering. And God says, hey, understand the signs of the times. These things aren't happening just out of the blue. They're not coincidences. God actually, did you notice that as George was reading here out of our passage, he said that, uh, he said, well, I'm going to give you the new stuff, but you need to understand that it's going to replace, he says in verse 25, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, right? The great locust and the young locust, the other locust and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. It wasn't a coincidence. I sent it to you because you need to wake up from the lives that you're living now. You are breaking the covenant. The book of Joel doesn't tell us exactly how the people of Israel broke the covenant. If you want to know all of the different ways God's people broke the covenant, you can read pretty much any other book in the Bible. If you want to know all the ways that we are not faithful to the covenant that God has made with us, we can just look into our own hearts and we can find sin there. We can find unfaithfulness there. And God says, this is me coming to tell you, you you need to be different. You need to change. You need to transform. Ultimately, you need to repent. And that's where we spent the last uh, three weeks, not including sermon and song last week. What does real repentance look like? It looks like saying, God, there's nothing I can do. I have messed this up. It's my fault. And I can't blame anyone else. And my only hope is, is you. The person I have made angry. You're my only hope. Return to the Lord uh, with feasting, uh, fasting excuse me, and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments, he says. And then something interesting happens. He says, who knows? This is right after. He says, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. He says, God, he may be the one who sent the locusts now, who sent the drought, who's allowing the armies to pillage, but he relents. He says, I'm not going to do that forever. And then there's this fascinating statement where he says, who knows he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. And I think if we really want to understand God's restoration, which we got in our scripture reading this morning and which we'll unpack in just a minute, we need to understand this statement, who knows he may turn and relent. Because if you notice, he kind of speaks out of both sides of his mouth here, the prophet Joel, doesn't he? He says, on the one hand, he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. And then he says, who knows? Which of them does he mean? Does he mean, no, God relents, or does he mean he might relent? How do we hold those things together? Well, I think what we need to understand is that when human beings are speaking, they say, who knows? And when God is speaking, he says, I will. And that's really important. That's really significant. Because it means that repentance and restoration, us coming to God and saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Help me to live in the way that you want me to live. And God saying, I accept your confession. I forgive you and I will restore you. It means it's not a mechanical thing. 
It's not going up to a machine. You know, uh, when I was a kid, we, we went up to Crystal Cave on Thursday with the family. And when we came down, uh, we stopped at Pizza Factory in, Woodla- in Three Rivers, excuse me, for dinner. And they have video games in the corner. Have you ever been up there? You noticed that? By the old bank vault, they've got video games there. And it took me back to when I was a kid. Because when I was a kid, oh man, we loved those arcade games. We used to go to arcades, right? I don't even know if arcades exist anymore. You remember arcades? Anybody here? You'd you'd go in and and you'd go to the, the coin machine. Right, and you'd stick in your dollar bill, or if you were lucky, your $5 bill, or if your parents deeply loved you, your $20 bill. And you would get quarters back out because the games took quarters. And you'd go up to the machine and you'd put a quarter in them. And, and our relationship with God, our asking for repentance, or asking for forgiveness through repentance, and God's granting us forgiveness and restoration, it's not like sticking a dollar bill into the coin machine. Or even a $20 bill into the coin machine. Do you ever think, if you ever did that, did you have like a a long, thoughtful meditation on what was happening when you stuck your dollar in the coin machine? Like, this is amazing. I'm going to put my dollar in this coin machine and four quarters are going to come out. It's unbelievable. Thank you, coin machine. Thank you. Of course you didn't. Because that's a mechanical sort of relationship, right? That's, that's where you, you do A and B happens. But that's not a, a people sort of relationship, is it? So when we, we go to God, it's not a mechanical action. That's why he says, you turn with your whole heart. Rend your heart and not your garments. Because it's not just about, okay, I've sinned. What are the three steps to making my sin right? Because sin is not a mechanical thing either, is it? Sin isn't a a, a fault. When when we do something that's wrong, it's not a a fault in the circuit board somewhere. Now we just let go and we solder it back together and everything's okay. You ever tried to repair the effects of the hurt that you've caused to other people? in any sort of way, shape, or form? Was it just you, you put the, the money in and the coins came out, or was it messy? It's messy, isn't it? I'm so sorry, but you hurt me so badly. But I, I'm so sorry. How do you undo the damage that you've done? I can't. That's why we need to be forgiven, Right? Because forgiveness is saying, you hurt me, but I will forget it. I won't live life with you always remembering that hurt. Remember how God forgives people? He says things. We use these in our, our, uh, uh, we first we do the prayer of confession, then next comes the assurance of pardon. We use it in the assurance of pardon. We say things God says in the Psalms. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sin from you. How far is the east from the west? They're, they're diametrically different, aren't they? They're really far. <laughs> Infinitely far. Infinitely far. It says, though your sins were as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. It's not you will sort this out and fix it. It's God saying, I will take on the responsibility. The wronged party will take on the responsibility. And we'll say, I will accept that hurt 
to restore the relationship. We need to understand that it's not just about, oops, I sinned. Let me get down on my knees and say, God, please forgive me. Okay, God forgives me because that's just what God does. You know, it's like putting a dollar in the coin machine and the four quarters come out every time. Sin's not that neat and tidy. We need to be reminded that we're actually in relationship. And that's why, that's why whenever people speak, they say, if he will relent, he might. And that's why every time God speaks, he says, I will. Because it's God call, God's call and not ours. We don't get to tell God, you got to forgive me. Like it's in our contract. God says, no, 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 you broke that contract. This is my call. So we need to come at this with, with humility and say, before we, before we get to restoration, we need to remember the cost of, of sin. Not so that we'll feel bad and feel terrible, but so that we'll remember that God is not a coin machine. He's not a vending machine, just handing out whatever we want whenever we want it, that he paid a price to make this happen. There was a song I was looking at this week. Uh, we don't know it here, but we used to sing it when I was younger. It's called The Beautiful Scandalous Night. Beautiful scandal. On that wonderful, tragic, mysterious tree, on that beautiful, scandalous night, you and me were atoned by his blood and forever washed white on that beautiful, scandalous night. Because it's both. Wonderful, tragic, mysterious tree. Our restoration comes at a cost. But it's a cost that our wonderful God was wonderfully willing to pay. Now, what does restoration look like when it comes? Because it will come, not because we forced it, but because God willingly gives it. When we give him our repentance, he does give us his grace, and he starts to restore Remember the three disasters the people of Israel faced. Locusts, drought, and foreign armies. And God says, I will drive the northern horde far from you. He says, I will send you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. Do you get what he was saying? All the damage and all the hurt that came about as a result of, of your sin, as, as a result of your covenant breaking, that came about as my message to you that this covenant is in bad shape because of the choices that you are making. I will not only stop them, because he could have just said, okay, I'll take away the locusts. You know, I'll stop the drought. I won't send another army while leaving the army that was already there. While not giving back the crops that the locusts destroyed. And while not promising any future rain. That's not what he does. He says, your life right now is a life of hunger and oppression but I am sending you grain, new wine, and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. 
Isn't that spectacular? I mean, stop and think. I know, it just, just hearing the words, maybe we're not taking in the full emotional impact of this. So I, I want us to think, stop for a moment and think, okay, if somebody does something wrong, he wrongs me or she wrongs me, and they come up to me and say, I'm so sorry, like, will you please forgive me for that? Do we want to restore them fully? Right off the bat, are you like, totally, this is great. Like, I'm so glad. We're just going to be friends again in every way. Or would you like to keep back enough so you can hold it over their head later when you want to or when you need to? Because I'm more like person number two in that scenario. Like, (laughs) this is great. Because now when I screw up, you got nothing to come back at me with because you screwed up first. (laughs) We got that. We got that self-interest thing. We've also got the hurt that's still in our lives. And we're thinking, no, 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 yeah, I need time. Back off. Let me, give me space to heal. And you know, sometimes we need that. That's not, that's part of this process of forgiveness and reconciliation that yeah, I'm, I'm not quite to God's level yet where I'm ready to just let go immediately, but I will work toward letting go completely at some point in the future. That's what we're called to, because that's what Jesus has done for us. Remember how in the, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, which we pray every Sunday so that I can tell you gotcha at different points? That's not why we do it, but it's convenient for this morning. Remember how it says, and forgive us our debts? How? As we forgive our debtors. When you look at somebody and and they've wronged you, and you say, I want to hold back a little bit of that forgiveness, I want to forgive you like 80%. That's pretty good, right? It's a B, B minus maybe, but 80%. That's some high quality forgiveness right there. And God's standing over our shoulders saying, really? You want to forgive 80%? Interesting. I've marked you down for 80% forgiveness. <laughs> oh, oh, no, God, that's not what I meant. Oh, yeah, it is. We forgive as we were forgiven. Otherwise, we're not following Jesus very well, are we? Not following him very well at all. See, God's intention is to restore 100%, 100% and more of what we lost. In a different context, Jesus speaks uh, to his disciples in uh, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 18. I'm giving you more and more of the references. I slowly find it. Verses 29 to 30. This is what he says. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. What have you lost this morning? What have you lost? What have you lost in your life? What if you knew that God was intending to restore it all to you and more? Not just at some future date, but already to begin pouring that out right now. Let me tell you, there's, there's some things I don't understand about this. I, I don't have answers for you this morning. Do you remember, I was talking with someone about this last week after church. You know who you are. In the book of Job. Job is a righteous man, and he loses everything. He loses all of his wealth, he loses all of his prestige, and he loses all of his family except for his wife who tells him, curse God and die, (laughs) which maybe would have been a blessing to lose her as well. I don't know. (laughs) 
And at the end, it says God gave it all back. I'm 100% sure he didn't mean God resurrected his children and gave them back. So how could all have really been restored? I've got a couple of ideas that we might explore. The first thing is that sometimes we, we value God's gifts wrongly. If you could make up a list right now of everything that you want God to give you and restore to you, I'd imagine there are at least a few things you could think of right off the top of your head. Say, this is what I would choose for myself. Right? You got some of those things in mind? Is that what God has given to you over the last, say, year and a half? Has God still been blessing you over the last year and a half? I'm referring to the time period of COVID, by the way. Is your business down over the last year and a half because of COVID? Is your time with your loved ones down over the last year and a half because of COVID? Has the convenience of your life gone down over the last year and a half because of COVID. And for how many of us were those things on our list? Family time and freedom to do whatever I wanted whenever I wanted to do it and a stable living, security. But it doesn't seem like those things were on God's list, were they? I think the last uh, 18 to 24 months, none of us would have chosen this time, would we? And what would we have missed? Because God's intention isn't to make us as comfortable as he can in this life, but to prepare us for an eternal life, to prepare us for a life without sin, to prepare us for a life where the pleasures of this world aren't our ultimate pleasures. See, God's making us into a different sort, a different kind of people than we would have ever chosen for ourselves. And it's because he's better than we are. Not just in a moral sense, but in every sense. He knows what the good things are in life. Better than we do. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, I, I love how he said our, our desires, God doesn't consider our desires too strong. Because yeah, sometimes we feel that way, like, oh, you know, I've got these, these desires, whatever kind of desires there. I've got these, these sexual desires. I've got these, these economic desires. I, I've got these, these uh, uh, hedonistic desires. Whatever they are, we've got these desires. And we think, if only my desires weren't so strong, you know, I, I could use my brain to choose what's really good, and I could do that. But Lewis says, it's not that God thinks our desires are too strong. He thinks they're too weak because they're all focused on the wrong sorts of things. Here we are playing around with sex and alcohol, with with money and power. We're playing around with these things. When God offers us a forever life, not just in terms of quantity, but in terms of quality. It's a different life. It's not the same as what we would choose on our own. I'm going to make this point and go back to where we were originally. Lewis says, we're like children making mud pies, even though we've been offered an opportunity for a holiday at the sea. 
And we come back again to this passage in Joel. And it, it tells us that we will be repaid for the years the locusts have eaten. That time is not gone, never to be retrieved. God will retrieve it for us. Job, even though he has lost things that seem irreplaceable, will nevertheless have them replaced and more, beginning in this life and continuing on into the next. I'm sorry that I can only point to it. Kind of off there somewhere. Something that we know is happening, but we can't quite put our finger on. Instead of clearly identify for, identify it this morning. But I know it's true. And it's because we come back to the cross on this one. God restored everything that Jesus lost on the cross. He lost his life. God gave it back. And not just you know, a life that was sort of like it or, or a life that was an escape from the old bad life, but he redeemed his old life. He said, yeah, you had a broken body, but not only am I going to give it back to you, I'm going I'm to make it better. And then Jesus did all sorts of weird things, like the disciples were in a locked room. They closed all the doors and locked them and pulled all the shutters. There were probably no windows, but whatever. You know, they closed up all the windows so nobody could get in because they were afraid. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, was there. It's a body that's more. See, resurrection is the, the pattern here. God won't just give us something else and say, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry, you know, your ice cream fell down, but I'm all out of ice cream today. How about a lollipop? No, he says, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that you dropped your ice cream cone. How about I give you an ice cream sundae? That's better than an ice cream cone, in case you're not tracking, by the way. Hot fudge sundae, oh, man. And you know what? Maybe at first you might be disappointed. You're like, well, but that was my favorite ice cream. And it had the waffle cone. You know, and I love the waffle cone. I'm totally going to Rhymers right after we're done here this morning. <laughs> I think we all are, right? <laughs> but the Sunday comes out in a waffle bowl. How much can I torture this metaphor this morning? Let's move on. <laughs> Why? Why will God restore what we've lost in ways that pass our ability to even start to imagine? You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. And then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other Never again will my people be shamed. See, the ultimate promise that God makes here is that finally, after you've been restored, finally, you'll find what you've been looking for. You'll find me. I will be your God. You will be my people. And you'll stop looking all these other different places for satisfaction and for hope and for answers because I'll be everything to you. I'll be it all. There is no other. And you'll never again be shamed. 
let me sum it up this way. We have a God who knows that we don't get what the best things are in life. We sometimes take bad things and we say, that's the good stuff. We sometimes take good things that aren't the best things and say, that's the good stuff. Making mud pies when we're offered a holiday at the sea. And God says, all of this life, all of your brokenness, all of your sin, everything that you've ever done wrong, every regret that you have, I've been storing those up. Not to remind you of them, not to condemn you, not so that you will think, gosh, I, I, I'm just crushed under the weight of all of this, but so that finally you will understand what the really good things are in life. Finally, you will understand that I have offered myself the God of the whole universe. Who whole, he's, he's got the whole world in his hands. The whole world. He is the master of our world. He is the creator of every good and perfect thing. And he says, I want to be your eternal companion. And you know what language he uses for that? He doesn't say, I want you to come over to my house sometimes. Remember when we were kids and you got the phone call, you want to come over to my house today and play? You're like, oh yes, I love coming to your house because they've got different stuff. You've got better toys, whatever it is. We're thinking it's so great to go to their house, but then you got to go home at the end of the night. So that's not the relationship I want with you. I remember when uh, I was about to get married, and that was one of the things that I thought. It'll be so nice that I don't have to say goodnight anymore and go home. But my home will be with my wife. And what's the relationship that God has called us to with himself? It's a marriage relationship. You are the bride of Christ. Whether you're a lady or a dude, you are the bride of Christ. And you won't have to leave and go home at night, but you will stay with the delight of your life every moment, forever. And in light of that, every other gift and every other blessing starts to fade. But sometimes we don't, we don't get it. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, and let me tell you, I can identify with you. And you're thinking, yeah, but what I'd really like, what I'd really like is my waffle cone. It's okay. Because God will use the rest of your life to win you over. And to say, no, you want a hot fudge sundae with whipped cream and cherries in the waffle bowl. Still got the waffle cone. And no peanuts because those stink. <laughs> I will spend the rest of your life teaching you that that was always the true desire of your heart. St. Augustine, in his book Confessions, his autobiography, said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee.